Chapter thirty eight of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter thirty eight A Diplomatist's Dinner. Were we writing a drama instead of a true history? we might like to linger for a few moments on the leave-taking between the princess and sir horace upton they were indeed both consummate artistes and they played their parts to perfection not as we see high comedy performed on the stage by those who grotesque its refinements and exaggerated stignity lashing to storm the calm and placid lake all whose convulsive throes are many a fathom deep and whose wildest workings never bring a ripple to the surface no theirs was the true version of well-bred performance a little well-affected grief at separation brief as it was meant to be a little half-expressed surprise on the lady's part at the suddenness of the departure a little just as vaguely conveyed complaint on the other side over the severe requirements of duty and a very little tenderness for there was no one to witness it at the thought of parting and with a kiss upon her hand whose respectful courtesy no knight-errant of old could have surpassed sir horace backed from the presence sighed and slipped away had our reader been a spectator instead of a peruser of the events we have lately detailed he might have fancied from certain small asperities of manner certain quickness of reproof and readiness at rejoinder that here were two people only waiting for a reasonable and decent pretext to go on their separate roads in life yet nothing of this kind was the case the bond between them was not affection it was simply convenience their partnership gave them a strength and a social solvency which would have been sorely damaged had either retired from the firm and they knew it what would the princess's dinners have been without the polished ease of him who felt himself half the host what would all sir horace upton's subtlety avail him if it were not that he had sources of information which always laid open the game of his adversaries singly each would have had a tough struggle with the world together they were more than a match for it the highest order of diplomatist in the estimation of upton was the man who at once knew what was possible to be done it was his own peculiar quality to possess this gift but great as his natural acuteness was it would not have availed him without those secret springs of intelligence we have alluded to there is no saying to what limit he might not have carried this faculty had it not been that one deteriorating and detracting feature marred and disfigured the fairest form of his mind he could not do all that he would disabuse himself of a very low estimate of men and their motives he did not slide into this philosophy as certain indolent people do 
just to save them the trouble of discriminating he did not acquire it by the hard teachings of adversity no it came upon him slowly and gradually the fruit as he believed of calm judgment and much reflection upon life as little did he accept it willingly he even labored against the conviction but strive as he might there it was and there it would remain his fixed impression was that in every circumstance and event in life there was always a dessous de cartes a deeper game concealed beneath the surface and that it was a mere question of skill and address how much of this penetrated through men's actions if this theory unravelled many a tangled web of knavery to him it also served to embarrass and confuse him in situations where inferior minds had never recognized a difficulty how much ingenuity did he expend to detect what had no existence how wearily did he try for soundings where there was no bottom through the means of the princess he had learned what some very wise heads do not yet like to acknowledge that the feeling of the despotic governments towards england was very different from what it had been at the close of the great war with napoleon they had grown more dominant and exacting just as we were becoming every hour more democratic to maintain our old relations with them therefore on the old footing would be only to involve ourselves in continual difficulty with the certainty of final failure and the only policy that remained was to encourage the growth of liberal opinions on the continent out of which new alliances might be formed to recompense us for the loss of the old ones there is a story told of a certain benevolent prince whose resources were unhappily not commensurate with his good intentions and whose ragged retinue wearied him with entreaties for assistance be of good cheer said he one day i have ordered a field of flax to be sown and you shall all of you have new shirts such were pretty much the position and policy of england out of our crop of constitutionalism we speculated on a rich harvest to be afterwards manufactured for our use and benefit we leave it to deeper heads to say if the result has been all that we calculated on and asking pardon for such digression we join sir horace once more when sir horace upton ordered post-horses to his carriage he no more knew where he was going nor where he would halt than he could have anticipated what course any conversation might take when once started he had to be sure a certain ideal goal to be reached but he was one of those men who like to think that the casual interruptions one meets with in life are less obstruction than opportunity so that instead of deeming these subjects for regret or impatience he often accepted them as indications that there was some profit to be derived from them a kind of fatalism more common than is generally believed when he set out for sorrento it was with the intention of going direct to massa 
not that this state lay within the limits of his functions ascribed to him that being probably the very fact which imparted a zest to the journey any other man would have addressed himself to his colleague in tuscany or wherever he might be while he being sir horace upton took the whole business upon himself in his own way young massey's case opened to his eyes a great question viz what was the position the austrians assumed to take in italy for any care about the youth or any sympathy with his sufferings he distressed himself little not that he was in any respect heartless or unfeeling it was simply that greater interests were before him here was one of those grand issues that he felt worthy of his abilities it was a cause where he was proud to hold a brief resolving all his plans of action methodically yet rapidly arranging every detail in his own mind even to the use of certain expressions he was to employ he arrived at the palace of the embassy where he desired to halt to take up his letters and make a few preparations before his departure his maestro di casa signor franchetti was in waiting for his arrival and respectfully assured him that all was in readiness and that his excellency would be perfectly satisfied we had it is true continued he a difficulty about the fish but i sent off an express to baia and we have secured a sturgeon what are you raving about caro pippo said the minister what is all this long story of baia and the fish has your excellency forgotten that we have a grand dinner to-day at eight o'clock that the prince maximilian of bavaria and all the foreign ambassadors are invited is this saturday pippo said horace blandly yes your excellency send mr brockett to me said sir horace as he slowly mounted the stairs to his own apartment sir horace was stretched on a sofa in all the easy luxury of magnificent dressing-gown and slippers when mr brockett entered and without any preliminary of greeting he said with a quiet laugh you have let me forget all about the dinner to-day brockett i thought you knew it you took great trouble about the persons to be asked and you canvassed whether the duke de borodino being only a charge d'affaires there there don't you see the the inappropriateness of what you are doing even in england a man is not asked to criminate himself how many are coming nineteen the nonce is ill and has sent an apology then the party can be eighteen brockett you must tell them that i am ill too ill to come to dinner i know the prince max very well he'll not take it badly and as to Cinicelli, we shall see what humor he is in. But they'll know that you arrived here this afternoon. They'll naturally suppose, they'll naturally suppose, if people ever do anything so intensely stupid as naturally to suppose anything, that I am the best judge of my own health. And so, Mr. Brockett, you may as well con over the terms by which you may best acquaint the company with the reasons for my absence and if the prince proposes a visit to me in the evening 
let him come. He'll find me here in my own room. Would you do me the kindness to let Antinori fetch his cupping glasses? And tell Franchetti also that I'll take my chicken grilled, not roasted. I'll look over the treaty in the evening. One mushroom, only one, he may give me, and the Carl's bad water, at twenty-eight degrees. I'm very troublesome, Brockett, but I'm sure you'll excuse it. Thanks, thanks. And he pressed the secretary's hand and gave him a smile, whose blandishment had often done good service, and would do so again. To almost any other man in the world, this interruption to his journey, this sudden tidings of a formally arranged dinner which he could not or would not attend, would have proved a source of chagrin and dissatisfaction. Not so with Upton. He liked a contrariety. Whatever stirred the still waters of life, even though it should be a headwind, was far more grateful than a calm. He laughed to himself at the various comments his company were sure to pass over his conduct. He pictured to his mind the anger of some and the astonishment of others, and reveled in the thought that the courtier-like indignation such treatment of a royal highness was certain to elicit. But who can answer for his health? said he with an easy laugh to himself. Who can promise what he may be ten days hence? The appearance of his dinner, if one may dignify by such a name, the half of a chicken, flanked by a roasted apple and a biscuit, cut short his lubrications, and Sir Horace ate and sipped his Carlsbad with as much enjoyment as many another man has felt over venison and Chambertin. Are they arrived, Pipple? said he, as his servant removed the dessert of two figs and a lime. Yes, Your Excellency, they are at table. How many are there? Seventeen, sir, and Mr. Brockett. Did the prince seem to... to feel my absence, Pipple? I thought he appeared very sorry for your excellency when Mr. Brockett spoke to him, and he whispered something to an aide-de-camp beside him. And the others, how did they take it? Count Tarocco said he'd retire, sir, that he could not dine where the host was too ill to receive him. But the Duc de Campostretto said it was impossible they could leave the room while a royal highness continued to remain in it, and they all agreed with him. Ha, 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 laughed Upton in a low tone. I hope the dinner is a good one. It is exquisite, sir. The prince ate some of the caviar soup, and was asking a second time for the pain de Ortlan when I left the room. And the wine, Pipple? Have you given them that rare La Rose? Yes, Your Excellency. And the Klaus Toller Carbonet, His Royal Highness had asked for it. Go back, then, now. I want for nothing more. Only drop in here by and by and tell me how all goes on. Just light that pastille before you go. There, that will do. And once more his excellency was left to himself. In that vast palace, 
the once home of a royal prince. No sounds of the distant revelry could reach the remote quarter where he sat, and all was silent and still around him, and Upton was free to ruminate and reflect at ease. There was a sense of haughty triumph in thinking that beneath his roof, at that very moment, were assembled the great representatives of almost every important state of Europe, to whom he had not deigned to accord the honor of his presence. But though this thought did flit across his mind, far more was he intent on reflecting what might be the consequences, good or evil, of the incident. And then, said he aloud, how will Printing House Square treat us? What a fulminating leader shall we not have, denouncing either our insolence or our incompetence, ending with the words, If then Sir Horace Upton be not incapacitated from illness for the discharge of his high functions, it is full time for his government to withdraw him from a sphere where his caprice and impertinence have rendered him something worse than useless and then will come a flood of petty corroborations the tourist tribe who heard of us at berlin or called upon us at the hague and whose unreturned cards and uninvited wives are counts in the long indictment against us what a sure road to private friendships is diplomacy how certain is one of conciliating the world's good opinion by belonging to it i wish i had followed the law or medicine muttered he they are both abstruse both interesting or been a gardener or a shipwright or a mathematical instrument maker or whatever the next choice might have been we know not for he dropped off asleep from that pleasant slumber and a dream of heaven knows what life of arcadian simplicity of rippling streams and soft-eyed shepherdesses he was destined to be somewhat suddenly if not rudely aroused as franchetti introduced a stranger who would accept no denial your people were not for letting me up upton cried a rich mellow voice and harcourt stood before him bronzed and weather-beaten as he came off his journey you george is it possible exclaimed sir horace what best of all lucky winds has driven you here i'm not sure i wasn't dreaming of you this very moment i know i have had a vision of angelic innocence and simplicity which you must have had your part in but do tell me when did you arrive and whence not till i have dined by jove i have tasted nothing since daybreak and then it was only a mere apology for a breakfast franchetti get something will you said upton languidly a cutlet a fowl anything that can be had at once nothing of the kind signor franchetti interposed harcourt if i have a wolf's appetite i have a man's patience let me have a real dinner soup fish an entree two if you like roast beef and i leave the wind-up to your own discretion only premising that i like game and have a weakness for woodcocks 
By the way, does this climate suit Bordeaux, Upton? They tell me so, and mine has a good reputation. Then claret be it, and no other wine. Don't I make myself at home, old fellow, eh? said he, clapping Upton on the shoulder. Have I not taken his majesty's embassy by storm, eh? We surrender at discretion, only too glad to receive our vanquisher. Well, and how do you find me looking? Be candid. How do I seem to your eyes? Pretty much as I have seen you these last fifteen years, not an hour older at all events. That same delicacy of constitution is a confounded deal better than most men's strong health, for it never wears out. But I have always said it, Upton will see us all down. Sir Horace sighed, as though this were too pleasant to be true. Well, said he at last, but you have not told me what good chance has brought you here. Is it the first post-station on the way to India? No, they've taken me off the saddle and given me a staff appointment at Corfu. I'm going out second in command there, and whether it was to prevent my teasing them for something else, or that there was really some urgency in the matter, they ordered me off at once. Are they reinforcing the garrison there? asked Upton. No, not so far as I have heard. It were better policy to do so than to send out a commander-in-chief and a drummer of great experience, muttered Upton to himself, but Harcourt could not catch the remark. Have you any news stirring in England? What do the clubs talk about? asked Sir Horace. Glencore's business occupied them for the last week or so. Now I think it is yourself furnishes the chief topic for speculation. What of me? asked Upton eagerly. Why, the rumor goes that you are to have the foreign office. Adderley, they say, goes out, and Conway and yourself are the favorites, the odds being slightly on his side. This is all news to me, George, said Upton, with a degree of animation that had nothing fictitious about it. I have had a note from Adderley in the last bag, and there's not a word about these changes. Possibly, but perhaps my news is later. What I allude to is said to have occurred the day I started. Ah, very true, and now I remember that the messenger came round by Vienna, sent there by Adderley, doubtless, muttered he, to consult Conway before seeing me, and I have little doubt with a letter for me in the event of Conway declining. "'Well, have you hit upon the solution of it?' said Harcourt, who had not followed him through his half-uttered observation. "'Perhaps so,' said Upton, slowly, while he leaned his head upon his hand and fell into a fit of meditation. Meanwhile, Harcourt's dinner made its appearance, and the Colonel seated himself at the table with the traveller's appetite. "'Whenever anyone has called you a selfish fellow, Upton,' said he, as he helped himself twice from the same dish. I have always denied it, and on this good ground, that, had you been so, you had never kept the best cook in Europe while unable to enjoy his talents. What a rare artist must this be! What's his name? 
Hippo, how is he called? said Upton languidly. Monsieur Carmel, your Excellency. Ah, to be sure, a person of excellent family. I've been told he's from Provence, said Upton, in the same weary voice. I could have sworn to his birthplace, cried Harcourt. No man can manage cheese and olives and cookery but a Provencal. Ah, what a glass of Bordeaux! To your good health, Upton, and to the day that you may be able to enjoy this as I do, said he as he tossed off a bumper. It does me good even to witness the pleasure it yields, said Upton blandly. By Jove, then, I'll be worth a whole course of tonics to you, for I most thoroughly appreciate all the good things you have given me. By the way, how are you off for dinner company here? Any pleasant people? I have no health for pleasant people, my dear Harcourt. Like horse exercise, they only agree with you when you are strong enough not to require them. Then what have you got? asked the colonel, somewhat abashed. Princes, generals, envoys, and heads of departments. Good heavens! Legions of honor and golden fleeces. Just so, said Upton, smiling at the dismay in the other's countenance. I have had such a party as you describe to-day. Are they gone yet, Franchetti? They're at coffee, Your Excellency, but the prince has ordered his carriage. And you did not go near them? asked Harcourt in amazement. No, I was poorly, as you see me said Upton, smiling. Pippo tells me, however, that the dinner was a good one, and I am sure they pardon my absence. For an ease, I've no doubt, though I can't say I like it, muttered Harcourt. At all events, it is not for me to complain, since the accident has given me the pleasure of your society. You are about the only man I could have admitted said Upton, with a certain graciousness of look and manner that, perhaps, detracted a little from its sincerity. Fortunately, not so to Harcourt's eyes, for he accepted the speech in all honesty and good faith, as he said, Thank you heartily, my boy. The welcome is better even than the dinner, and that is saying a good deal. No more wine, thank you. I'm going to have a cigar, and, with your leave, I'll ask for some brandy and water. This was addressed to Franchetti, who speedily reappeared with a liqueur stand and an ebony cigar case. Try these, George. They're better than your own, said Upton, dryly. That I will, cried Harcourt, laughing. I'm determined to draw all my resources from the country in occupation, especially as they are superior to what I can obtain from home. This same career of yours, Upton, strikes me as rather a good thing. You have all these things duty-free? Yes, we have that privilege, said Upton, sighing. And the privilege of drawing some few thousand pounds per annum, paid messengers to and from England, secret service money, and the rest of it, eh? Upton smiled and sighed again. And what do you do for all that? I mean, what are you expected to do? 
keep your party in when they are in, disconcert the enemy when your friends are out. And is that always a safe game? asked Harcourt eagerly. Not when played by unskillful players, my dear George. They occasionally make sad work, and get bowled out themselves for their pains, but there's no great harm in that, neither. How do you mean there's no harm in it? Simply, that if a man can't keep his saddle, he oughtn't to try to ride foremost. But these speculations will only puzzle you, my dear Harcourt. What of Glencore? You said a while ago that the town was talking of him. How and wherefore was it? Haven't you heard the story, then? Not a word of it. Well, I'm a bad narrator. Besides, I don't know where to begin. And even if I did, I have nothing to tell but the odds and ends of club gossip. For I conclude nobody knows all the facts but the king himself. If I were given to impatience, George... You would be a most consummate plague to me, said Upton. But I am not. Go on, however, in your own blundering way, and leave me to glean what I can in mine. Cheered and encouraged by this flattering speech, Harcourt did begin. But, more courteous to him than Sir Horace, we mean to accord him a new chapter for his revelations, promising the while to our reader that the colonel, like the knife-grinder, had really no story to tell. End of chapter 38